You're listening to Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show about books, people who read, and how reading at its very best is a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. There is the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Likewise, if you read a book and don't discuss it, have you enjoyed all the perks of being a book lover? I'm your host, Amy. I've been a member of numerous book clubs over the last 25 years and started quite a few. I love asking people what they're reading so that they'll ask me the same. I'm a vintage bookseller, a traveler wannabe, and a fanatic about dogs. And I'm your host, Carrie. I'm an English teacher, a freelance writer, a blogger, and the person whose Instagram feed features more photos of my cats than my kids. Each week, we will talk with a guest who shares the love of reading, how they impart that passion, and what books really catch them on fire. We will also tell you about our literary lives, what books are on our nightstands, and other bookish fun. Welcome. Today on the show, Carrie and I talk with Sherry Howard, a Kirkus-starred children's book author who refuses to be defined by what society expects of someone with a spinal injury or of a more mature woman. Her creative mind knows no limitations. She talks to us about how writing has become a family affair, how her work with special needs children influenced her newest book, Rock and Roll Woods, and why your brain needs to be exercised like any other muscle. We do a deep dive into the world of children's book writing and publishing. So I want to welcome Sherry Howard into the studio with us today. She has a new children's book out called Rock and Roll Woods, and she's going to tell us all about that and about her experience as a children's book writer. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you for having me, Amy and Carrie. So tell us a little bit about yourself. It's almost a double story. I feel like I've lived a double life because I had a normal life with a husband and two children, and I was a career educator. And then about 25 years ago, my life changed real radically, and I became a widow raising a child on my own. So I feel like I've lived two lives that are kind of broken in half by uh, a health problem and my husband's death. So I know that you worked professionally with children. What kind of things did you do? I was first a teacher and then became a consultant with teachers and then eventually became a principal of a special school for children with extreme handicaps, multiple handicaps. And I was there five years. They asked me to make a switch to a middle school that needed some strong leadership. And I made a switch at their request at that time and absolutely loved both schools. One was the special school, which just ate at my heart because I loved the children and the parents so much. But then when I went to the middle school, it was a real challenge and so much fun to have almost a thousand kids you were responsible for. But there was big payoff in what you did every day for those kids. So what drew you into being a a special, or I guess an exceptional child education is what they call it now, I think. Mm -hmm. So what kind of drew you to that field? What was it about that, that specific niche of teaching? At the time I went into special education or exceptional child education, it was the way you got into the school district. They basically were not hiring teachers who were not willing to teach exceptional education But once I got into it, I absolutely loved it and probably wouldn't have switched to the middle school had they not really asked me to do that. Although, as I said, I loved it once I got there. But my heart has always been with exceptional children. And 
by definition of the organization that I was a big part of for years, Exceptional Children covers a really wide range from advanced program children who are also exceptional in a different way to children with a lot of handicaps that intertwine and make it very complicated for them to be educated. And I think it's important for listeners to know, sometimes we think of just physical handicaps, but it's not just physical. I mean, sometimes it is, Mm -hmm. but it's also maybe children who have like sensory processing disorder. And so that can be a a pretty wide range, as you said. It's a huge range. And actually, the percentage of children affected by it is pretty big. And the physical handicapped uh, children are just a very, very small percentage of the children who need special services. People call these things by different names, but you have children who have just a general slowness in development or children who have some very specific problems that result in a learning disability. And, you know, what you mentioned, sensory processing, that can be part of many things. That can You can have a child with sensory processing issues who isn't considered to have any exceptional needs in a school setting but you know they have sensory processing problems because that's, again, a wide range. And it's just a really big ball of disabilities and exceptionalities that fall under there. Would autism also fall under that special needs? Yes. And children with autism a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times they have other specified disabilities. And I've been away from the verbiage that they use in the SPARC meetings to identify children, but it's very often that children with autism have an additional exceptionality that might be identified by the school. But And again, they've called it a spectrum, and it truly Mm -hmm. is, because I've worked with children from an autistic child who got a full scholarship to speed engineering when he was 12 to a child with autism who self-abused all day. So the range of children in that spectrum is unbelievable. And I think that was probably one of the reasons for professionals to start identifying Asperger's syndrome, because there are a lot of children who fall at that tiny end of the spectrum who have a lot of the tendencies that autistic children have, but they're just much more mildly affected by it all. All the experiences you had, are those the things that sort of led you into the the book writing? So tell us a little bit how the process began with you writing books, and then also how your experiences influenced the writing. What led me to the writing was Hunter growing up, my last child that I raised, and he was getting independent, and I'd always loved writing and reading, of course, and I just decided I would learn a little bit more, and there are some courses called MOOCs, and that stands for Massive, Massive Online Something Classes, and the University of Iowa offers a lot of wonderful writing MOOCs. They're free. They're taught by the same professors who teach paid classes. The University of Iowa has, like, one of the best writing workshops in the country. I mean, amazing writers come out of that program. Well, I started with their massive online MOOC and uh, did it for a few years and became a mentor in that program for a year. And then, you know, that just really encouraged me to do writing. And in the meantime, I'd been subbing a few short stories, a few poems here and there. I'm not really big about subbing, and that's 
a flaw that I have that I just don't send things out. I write them and put them in a drawer. But I did get a few things published early on. So explain, we're not familiar with that term. So I'm a substitute teacher. (laughs) So when you say subbing, I'm thinking a totally different thing. So what what do you mean by that? Subbing just means sending your work out to be considered for publication. And there are a lot of different ways that that happens. And my early experience was mostly with online magazines. But once I started having success there, I thought, I can write. I I can write for publication. And it just went on from there. And by now, I've probably taken... Oh, 50 classes? Maybe maybe that's an exaggeration. Might be less than that, but it feels like 50. <laughs> so of those MOOCs, those classes you were taking, were they mainly writing children's literature? No, the, the MOOCs that I took were just for writing fiction. But even in those, I tended to write about kids. Not necessarily writing that was oriented to kids, but in my writing, it, it just was always child-centered. And that just eventually led me to writing for children. And I took classes in that also and joined groups. Facebook is a wonderful place and Twitter to connect with other writers. Once you kind of get into that pool, you find out about a lot of good classes and a lot of good opportunities for writers. So how did you make that leap then from just having all of your writing in a drawer to actually (laughs) getting published? Well, most of the writing is still in a drawer. (laughs) But to uh, be remedied soon, I hope. (laughs) I have so many works in progress, things that I've started and not finished, that you really just have to zero in on what somebody wants right now, because now I also do work for hire. So can you give us just a little synopsis of your book? Well, Rock and Roll Woods is about a very grumpy bear, and his name is Kuda because that's what Kimora said we would name the bear. <laughs> I thank Kimora in the back of the book because she was really helpful with this book, and it was her idea. But Kuda, Kuda has a hard time processing some new sounds and is, is very put off by the invasion of loud noise in his woods. But Kuda eventually comes around and develops a loud sound of his own that he falls in love with. So it's a little bit about acceptance. It's a little bit about friendship because Kuda's friends stand by him throughout it. And it's a little bit about processing disorders. And when I started it, it wasn't with that intention. Oh, I'm going to sit down and write a book about processing disorders. It's just, again, all of my experiences combine and come out in what I write. So, and it's also a book that would be perfect for a teacher to use, even if they don't want to talk about any of those things you mentioned. Anybody who picks up this book will very quickly notice that it has a lot of onomatopoeia in it. (laughs) So any teacher or parent even who's, you know, wants to show their child examples of that, it would be a perfect book for that. Was that intentional or did that come later after the original idea? No, that's intentional. Part of what you learn when you write picture books are the techniques that help make a book fun for that age child. And I have studied picture book writing, specifically picture book writing, for about six years now. And that really helped when I wrote the book. And poetic technique, I also write poetry. So I try to use a lot of poetic technique when I write any book. And that that's a little bit where the onomatopoeia comes from. And kids love it. I usually start school. And certain adults who might be a little bit, <laughs> a little nerdy. But. Well, they would love the song. I had a, a songwriter 
do a song for it. So I'm able to start my school visits now with a song, which is so cute and so catchy. Have, did the publisher think about including that? Like as a little disc in the back of the book? Because I know some books do that. It's a small publisher. Okay. And she really doesn't do anything like that. But I'm able to share it. I'm still in early stages of marketing the book because it wasn't supposed to come out until October. It came out a little bit earlier in September. And you're sort of swamped at first. You know, you do Barnes and Noble and you do school visits and you do all the launch things. You visit all the blogs and do all of that. So I was a little overwhelmed with that for a while. So this year I'll be able to do a little bit more and I'm hoping to get the song out there. It is adorable. If you send it to us, we'll put it on our Facebook page. I will do that. (laughs) I don't know that we're uh, techie enough to be able to figure out how to make it work on here. But I will send it to y'all. It's so cute. Your experiences with exceptional child education probably influence the one you've published. It informs the writing. And it was my interest in special education that connected me with the publisher Spork, Clear Fork Publishing, who published the book, the owner of that company and I connected on Facebook. And we both had a real strong interest in exceptional child education. Now, she doesn't only publish this type of book, but she was very open to this type of book. And uh, when I wrote it, when I sent it to her, I didn't sit down and think I'll write a book about autism or about sensory processing disorder. I wrote the book that was in my heart. You know, I, my family just brainstormed with me what she's 11 now, 11 year old granddaughter. I was at a pausing place, like, what will I write today? Because I do that often. I said, what should we write about? And Kamora said, a bear. I said, okay. And I said, what will we name the bear? She wanted to name it Kuda after her bearded dragon, who now lives at my house, by the way. (laughs) So, we, you know, we started an idea about a bear who lives in the woods, and eventually, the, this was a whole family brainstorm, which is not unusual at my house at all. We needed an unusual noise that a bear would hear in the woods, and we didn't want any of the traditional ones that you might hear in the woods uh, at all. We didn't want any of that. So you didn't want, like, crickets or birds chirping, anything like that? Well, they're in there, too, but we didn't want the unusual noise to be any of that. Yes. So we brainstormed about what we would do. And, you know, when you ask about what influences your writing, I think all of your background, everything that you've lived through influences it. And we thought of drums. And that sort of related to my husband, who was a rock and roll, uh, had a rock and roll band, The Profiles, in Louisville a long time ago. And then my background with sensory processing, it just all merged into the book. So did you have any experience like in your own family in terms of somebody having sensory processing issues? Because I, I will say, when I read the book, my son has OCD and mm-hmm. a lot of sensory issues that go along with that. And so reading that book, it was like, oh, I so live this. I so understand <laughs> this. So I was just curious. Offhand, I can't say that I've had that specific experience with a family member, but I believe that all children go through some of this a little bit. And it's very interesting when I do school visits, I'll ask children to raise their hand if they have a hard time with loud sounds and a huge amount of little hands go up. And this is usually first and second graders or maybe ask them some other processing problems. You know, so many little hands raise. Like when I wrote the book, I didn't write the book 
for an audience of children with disabilities. I hope, I pray that someday the book might be used with those children. That, you know, that would be my end game. But I hope the book was written in a way that any child will pick it up and just have fun with it. One of the things that that your book made me think about, like it wasn't until my son was quote unquote diagnosed Mm -hmm. that I realized how many adults have things like sensory processing, but as adults, they're better able to choose what activities they participate in. So for example, if they don't like the loud noises at the movie theater, they just choose not to go see movies at the movie theater, as opposed to a child who has to go with the rest of the family, and then has to deal with uh, how that affects them. And so I, I really felt like I could see not just the child, specific child in my life, but also some of the adults I know exactly. who have the same <laughs> issues, they're able to react in a more adult manner than what the kids are. Right. That's part of the reason behind the book and the, you know, the author's note and then the back matter that's in the book. We wanted people to understand that some people have this problem to an extreme degree, but most of us have some sort of sensory issues, even into adulthood. I think with children, we try to force a square pig into a round hole in our schools. So when children have the problem, a lot of times they don't know how to verbalize that. And I think books can help them say, oh, yeah, I'm like that. Because a five-year-old, a six-year-old can't tell you things that really explain what they're feeling. They'll tell you their stomach hurts Mm -hmm. when that's just what they know to say about whatever anxiety or or out of control feeling they have. Right. That's almost like the symptom of, but their brain is pinging with something's wrong, something's, something's wrong. wrong. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and often they can't identify it. And schools aren't real good at at that because, and I'm not blaming the schools. I I think teachers are saints and heroes. But when you have 30 children or are around that number of little small bodies in a classroom. And, you know, the first day of school, those teachers don't know those children at all. Even if they've looked a little bit at their records or or talked to a teacher or whatever, they don't know them and they don't know what their sensitivities are. So the book received two Kirkus stars. One. one, They only only do one star. Okay. (laughs) So tell us what the significance is of that, because that's a pretty big deal. So explain that. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal, especially for an independent book. When you have a small publisher, you don't have all the perks of early reviews and marketing and all the things that the bigger publishers do. So you're working much harder on your marketing and on your reviews if you, you know, if you want to try to get the word out. So with a Star Kirkus review, you just get a little more respect trying to get the book into libraries. And um, there's a place you can go online and find out which libraries have the book. And you can market a little bit more by saying it got a starred review on Kirkus because Kirkus is one of the reviewers that people really respect. And then Rock and Roll Woods was highlighted in one of their publications too. And it's just saying that you're extra awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take that and run. (laughs) So I want to hear a little bit more about the nuts and bolts about the publishing. So how did that work? Did you choose your own illustrator? Did the publisher choose your illustrator? How, How does that all work? Almost always when you're with a traditional publisher, the publisher choose an illustrator. There are a few author illustrators out there who do all their own and they are brilliant and I envy them. But typically if you write text only for a picture book, 
your publisher will pick your um, illustrator. Sometimes you have a little bit of a choice or, you know, I have a friend who's being published and she was able to look at the work of a few and pick which one she would prefer. So occasionally that happens that you have a voice in it, but sometimes you don't. And with mine, they picked the illustrator and I didn't see much early on. And when I saw it, I have to say that the book didn't look at all like I imagined. And it's so much better that I'm glad that they didn't take my imagination. (laughs) Was that weird? I mean, the whole book is sort of your imagination and an idea that you have and then to just hand it off. And then the illustrator is going to produce something that may not be what was in your head. Is that hard to let go of that control? On the first one, I didn't really understand the impact that would have. When I got the book in my hands, thank goodness that I had the wonderful illustrator that I did have because she did just way beyond what I could have even imagined. So there is a strangeness, even with editorial changes that are made to things that you write, There's a strangeness in getting to a certain point with a product and then giving it to someone else and they do whatever they want with it. So you had mentioned that a lot of your writing is in a drawer. And then you also said that you met the publisher through Facebook. Mm -hmm. So were you hoping to write a book and publish it? Or was this an opportunity presented itself meeting the publisher on Facebook and then you ran with it? All of that. (laughs) I was sort of thinking that I might be ready-ish with a manuscript or two. Picture book writing is so hard. I've written, now they haven't been all published. I have a chapter book with a contract on it and another chapter book that was work for hire. So I have chapter books. I've written a middle grade that's in the hands of a couple of agents and I just can't quite get over the leap with that one yet. So I've written a lot of different things. I've started with some adult books. There is nothing harder than a picture book because you have the ideal is 500 words and that's not much to work with. And you have very, very specific things that you have to do with those 500 words. So I thought I might be ready, but I wasn't sure. So I sent Callie one book, which she said um, she already had one too similar. So I sent this one and she just loved it. But even at that, I think it took like three months for me to understand that she had said, yes, I want the book. (laughs) (laughs) And and why was that? Why did it? You know, this is typical of publishing. You just, you do something and then you wait three months for an answer. Okay. Like even when you sign your contract, which came a few months probably after the original conversation, once you sign your contract, you're signing a contract that they have to do something within two years. So the contract, I hate to say it means nothing, But all it means is somebody's interested, and hopefully they'll publish it within two years. Had you thought at any point about self-publishing? Yes. I think at some point I may do some hybrid, which is, you know, when you're traditionally published and you do some self-publishing. At least several of my friends have moved from traditional publishing to self-publishing because you can do it and you have control over it. And the way Amazon has developed as a site for readers, it's very conducive to people who self-publish. And if you are a little bit savvy about it, I have one acquaintance who published a picture book and has, he now has three, has skyrocketed. It's his living. He's, He's an adult male who supports a family. Wow. And it's his living. And if you're traditionally published, that's not typical at all. Most traditionally published authors, even who have 
five or six books out with the big five publishers work a job Mm -hmm. and write in their spare time. Uh, You also have published a children's book, part of a science series. So I'm wondering how the process was different. The Deep Sea Divers book was a work for hire. And again, I sort of fell into that. Most of the things I've done with publishing, I just sort of fell into. I heard about work for hire, you know, where they just, they pay you a flat fee to write a book. You don't get royalties. It's very structured. They tell you what to write, how many words to use, what reading level. And then you do the writing part with a lot of editorial input. Then they publish the book. You get no royalties, but you got paid X amount of dollars to write the book, which is usually pretty low. So that process was really different because I heard about somebody looking for writers and I just, you submit a package with your resume and a sample and they hired me to write this book. And then it's the same publisher who then hired me to write a whole series. So I think they come out in August and it's a series of the fastest of different things like planes and boats and cars and that type of thing. This also was part of a series, The Deep Sea Divers, but I only wrote one book for that series. And so this series has photographs instead of illustrations? Yes. Is that correct? Yes. And that's not the, like the chapter book that I wrote for another company, Teacher Created Materials, that chapter book has actual illustrations. Some do published with pictures and some published with illustrations and you have no input or control over that other than the end they sent me a layout of what the book would look like and if they hadn't already pulled something from my writing to make a caption for a picture it was my job to write a caption that fit the picture and it sounds like they're totally different and it's hard to, a little bit hard to juggle both because the work for hire that I did that was a whole series, the research was intense. Well, the research for this was intense. So you're not just writing, you're doing a huge amount of research for most of them. So when you figure out how much you're making an hour, <laughs> it's not Don't much. figure out how much yeah. you're making per hour is what you're right. saying. <laughs> you don't really want to think about all the time you put into it, but it's so fun mm-hmm. and I enjoy deep research, so that's part of what I really love. I, I've been published uh, in magazines, but there's a certain thrill of just seeing your name published Absolutely. under something you've written. That That's a, an intangible. You can't really put a price on that. And it's still really weird for me. You know, I, I pick up the book and I see my name on it and I think, oh my gosh, I wrote that book. <laughs> and then, you know, as the books pile up and I get more, it's it's a strange feeling to realize that I actually wrote them and my name is on them. So what authors of children's books or any book really inspire you in your own writing? I'm inspired by so much, but I have to say that one author really, really touches me, and that's John Green. His books are wonderful. His writing, he's able to switch his voice depending on what he's writing in a beautiful, beautiful way. And he relates so much to his audience. So he's he's really an inspiration to me. And he's a really interesting man. Like if you watch his talks and things and learn more about him as a person, he's just a really interesting man. And he writes wonderful books and his skills really impress me. I know he's talked about his OCD. Do you feel like your experience having your disability has made you more sensitive maybe than you might have been in your 
past life to people who have maybe special issues that you can't see, you wouldn't know right away. Possibly, but I really think my awareness came from first teaching special education, then being a consultant, in, and I saw so much doing that, and then being principal of a school with uh, children with special needs. I think those experiences impacted me a whole lot more than my own. Because it's weird with a disability, you know, I explained to Amy that I use a walker or a wheelchair now for anything other than a real short distance. And I know that I'm disabled, and it hits me very often, oh, you can't do that. But I don't know that I've really accepted my disability to the extent that it influences me a lot. Mm. But all of those other experiences really did have an impact. I guess seeing it in someone else, maybe I'm more of an empath than feeling my own. (laughs) So you're talking about John Green, and you had mentioned, Carrie, about the OCD. I read his his last book, Turtles All the Way Down. I don't know if you read that one, Mm -hmm. but that is about his own experience. It's not based on his own life necessarily, but the main character suffers from OCD. And I have some members in my family who also have that disorder. Reading that, that's the closest I've ever seen or read something that I thought really mirrored what it feels like to that person to have that uh, problem. And it kind of relates a little bit back to what we've been talking about with your book and is that is that children, I'm sure, like adults as well, like to sometimes see characters that mirror their own experiences mm-hmm. to validate that there's not something wrong with them, that they're not by themselves, they're not alone in their experience. They're not the only people on the planet who are going through that. We all get a little, I guess, myopic that we <laughs> we're so focused on ourselves that we forget that other people in the world have those issues. Share those issues. You're exactly right. And one of the things that I think is so important with picture books is that sometimes when a subject is really touchy, you might use animals. Mm -hmm. And sometimes kids are able to relate to a theme or a problem more easily if it's an animal with the problem. Because sometimes if you see a child with a problem in a book, a child's maybe not as quick to say, I have that problem. But if but if it's an animal, they at least can internalize that bear has the same problem I do, even if they don't say it out loud. So that's I think that's part of why you see so many animals in children's books, especially with issues books. Well, I mean, I just thought of Eeyore. I mean, mm-hmm. Eeyore, if, if Eeyore was a human, we might not feel as tender towards him. Then <laughs> we might be like, okay, knock it off <laughs> if Eeyore was a human. But with Eeyore being an animal, looking the way he does, I think we do feel a certain sense of maybe a little more tenderness than exactly. we might otherwise. Exactly. That's exactly it. I want to hear a, bit, a little bit about your writing process. So do you write every day? Do you have a special place that you go to write? It's horrible to admit this, but most of my writing is done lying down because of my disability. And it was the invention of the iPad or making the iPad accessible that really changed my writing life because I could write lying down with the iPad. So that really changed my goals as a writer, because sitting at a computer is problematic for me for any length of time. But you can do everything on the iPad. And because of its portability, I write everywhere. (laughs) A lot of my writing is done lying down. You know, you get to certain stages in writing, especially with revision of novel length books that you kind of have to spread out. And then I'll maybe go to my kitchen table. 
I, I love to sit on my front porch and write. So on a nice day, I'll be on my front porch. I would love to do like a lengthy retreat somewhere and shut out my day-to-day world and be able to write. And maybe I'd get some of those things out of a drawer <laughs> and finish them. But I'm very portable with my writing. I just write wherever I have time. You talked about how you made the dream, brainstorming, I guess, Mm -hmm. the dream stage of the book. That was sort of a family endeavor. Would you say that that's the case in a lot of your writing? Yes. Yes, okay. I I torture my family. I have a young adult book that is yet to be published. That book, I tortured my grandson and his friend daily because I would make them work on the book with me. (laughs) Now, they were probably 15 at the time and kind of a captive audience. Now that he's older, I can't pin him down as much. But um, the young adult book is about uh, football and the use of illegal drugs in football. That was a book of my heart. It may never get published, but that was totally a family endeavor. So I think you have a really inspiring story, and you may not want to answer this, but can you speak to about how old you were when you first started publishing? I never give my actual age, but I will tell everyone that I'm a gray-headed granny, and I've earned all the gray hairs in my head. So I'm up in that older category, but maybe too old to want to say my age. (laughs) That is perfectly okay. As as a person myself who's in middle age and I feel like I only have so many years left to do all the things that I really want to do with my life. And so I find your story inspiring because you've had a whole other career after the time where most people think that you're done doing anything important in life. I think that I have something uh, unusual going on in my brain. I've never had ADHD in my life. But I feel like I have a writer ADD because all day and often all night, because I'm sort of an insomniac, in my head I'm writing. I think it's sort of a testament to the fact that as you age, you really don't lose your creativity if you nurture it. I think what happens with a lot of people is they don't nurture it anymore. I do have friends who are my age who love an easy chair and not not a whole lot else. And I physically can't do a lot that I envy people being able to do, you know, being able to be physically active. So I'm really limited there, but I'm not limited in my brain. And it ticks away all the time. Well, it has been really great talking to you about your book. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. Okay, do We are in the studio with our guest, Sherry Howard, a local children's author, and we're going to be talking about what we're reading. So I'll go ahead and start if that's okay with the two of you. No. No. no yes, that's fine. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm glad I picked this one because we've been talking about children's books. This is a, technically it's a children's book, but it is wonderful for adults as well. It's called Brown Girl Dreaming, and it's by Jacqueline Woodson. Uh, It won the National Book Award and was a Newbery Honor Book. And so I am in the midst of immersing myself in poetry books for middle schoolers because I always give my students an independent study that they have to do on their own without my input. 
And so this is one of the books that I have chosen. So I'm pre-reading so that I know what they're getting into. And it tells the story of her life in verse. And one of the things that it's made me think about is how poetry allows a reader to spend a lot of time inferring or guessing what is missing from the story because it doesn't give you everything it just gives you a taste it gives you little snippets of her life and then I'm left with all these questions Uh, she talks about how she was born in Ohio then her mom and dad split up and her mother moves the family to South Carolina. And so, you know, I have all these questions about, did she ever see her father? And what exactly made them split up? And then her mother, I'm to the point, I'm not finished with it, but I'm at the point where her mother then goes to New York, because she's thinking about taking the family to New York. And so the kids are left with their grandparents and I'm thinking about how their grandparents are feeling at the prospect of the kids leaving so I I think it's pretty wonderful and it's super quick and I'm enjoying it very much so I read that one last year and the thing that I thought too about having a book that's in verse like that is by doing it in verse and it's poetry it kind of like boils down I mean you have all this descriptive language But somehow it just boils it down to the essence. And there's something kind of beautiful about that in that story. So Sherry, what are you reading right now? Well, I'm reading a book that nobody will have heard of because it just came out. (laughs) It's by an actual friend of mine, Sharon Shamsey, and it's called Layla in the Sands of Time. And this is also by my small publisher. So, you know, she'll have to do some marketing to get the word out there and let people see her book. But... She's a wonderful lady, and she's written a beautiful book. I love books that give a different cultural experience, and this book really does a good job with that. So it's a book that is a fairly quick read, but it's a very deep read. It's written for, I think, middle grade, maybe YA, but it really gives a peek into a different kind of life than a lot of children know. What's What's the story? The story is the main character, Layla, and loses both of her parents eventually, but her father had always promised her a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, their Holy Land. And Layla eventually is able to take that pilgrimage with her aunt and uncle. But on the pilgrimage, she time travels. Back. Ooh, I love a time travel <laughs> yeah. book. It's really awesome. I think I can't remember exactly to what century, but she time travels and saves a baby's life, a girl baby's life, who would lose her life. And she is able to save that life and learn a lot about herself and is better able to accept her own life when she comes back to her reality. So you said a pilgrimage. Mecca. To Mecca. Mecca. Okay. I just wasn't sure which yeah. religion we were talking about <laughs> yeah. there. So I don't even know that it ever states the actual religion. It implies mm. it. So, Amy, what are you reading? So I am reading a book that's a new release. I'm really not a person who reads a lot of new releases, but it seems like this summer I have been loaded down with them. But it's a book that I heard about on another podcast. That podcast was called Sarah's Bookshelves Live, and she had a guest on maybe a month or so ago who mentioned this book as being a new release that she thought was worth the hype. And the book is called A People's History of Heaven. And I may butcher this name, but I'm going to do my best. Her name is Mithanji Subramaniam. 
and she's an Indian American author. And the book is about a slum in Bangalore, India, that the word translated to English is heaven. So first there's the dichotomy of it being a slum and also having the name heaven. And there's a wide group of characters. Almost all of them are female. This is really a woman's community that the book focuses on. There's all the aunties, which is what in India they often call the mothers. And then there's a group of teenage girls who go to school. And there's their schoolmaster, who is a single Indian woman. And the conflict in the story is that Bangalore wants to bulldoze the slum. And that is actually something that happens or really did happen, especially in in New Delhi back in 2011. I looked it up to see if this was based on a true story where they would just bulldoze all of these shanty towns and the people who live there didn't have anywhere else to go. Did you fall down a rabbit hole? You always you always get into these books and then sort of fall in a hole and then we're like, Amy, come back. <laughs> well, I do love a book that has a little bit of history that I can look back and I, you're right, I do fall down rabbit holes. I'm like, did this really happen? And then I'm Googling, you know, shantytown bulldozing and, you know, all kinds of different things. Um, but it, it did happen. And so the women are coming up with a plan to keep them from bulldozing. So so that's the main conflict in the story. But there's also the whole storyline of the girls and the schoolmaster trying to instill some hope for them for their future. And it's kind of interesting because this group of teenage girls, there's one who's transgender. There's one who is a lesbian. There's one who's blind. There's one who probably has either ADHD or dyslexia. She's not good at school, but she's a wonderful artist and she can almost construct anything. So these girls are a very interesting mix. And you would think that the book itself would be depressing because you're talking about the slums in India. But it really isn't. It's really a hopeful book. And the girls themselves or the people who live in heaven don't think of themselves as being hopeless and are actually offended when a reporter from the West comes over to film their situation, the bulldozer and the possible demolishment of their slum because they say, well, they portray us as having no no hope and they don't feel hopeless themselves. So there's a lot of different things going on in, in this book. It's really female focused. There are a few peripheral men, but for the most part, they're an afterthought. And there, I think there's one or two sort of semi-positive male, but most of them e- either aren't in the picture because they've deserted their wives and children or they've been abusive in some way. So it's really about the women's lives and how they are self-sufficient and able to look for a better future that doesn't necessarily have to include men. I'm not quite done with it, but I'm really, really enjoying it. You learn a lot about that culture and... I would recommend it. I'm going to circle back and be a complete Mike Hogg because I got thinking we're all reading books that are about people of color, which made me then think about the book. I usually have a few books going at a time. So I'm listening to the audio book of White Teeth by Zadie Smith. And I am enjoying that immensely. The person who is narrating it is fantastic. And she is able to do a Bengalese 
accent and Jamaican accent and English accent. I mean, she's fantastic. But that is a really interesting story about people of color in England. And it's kind of a long term story. It starts back with a person's great grandfather and then goes to the present to this man and then his children and what happens once they move to England. So it's really fascinating and a really great audiobook. So far, I'm only, I think I'm about 10 chapters in. So I've still got a ways to go, but it is keeping me thoroughly entertained. I'm just not in my car as often as I am during the school year. So it sounds like we're all reading uh, pretty diverse selections. We'll be back and talk about Sherry Howard's top five. We're back with our guest, Sherry Howard, and we're going to do her top five. And I'm going to start with a fun one because I know that she is a huge beach lover. And so, Sherry, I want to know, what is your top beach location? I don't think I'll ever love any place as much as I love Destin. I did love Hawaii, but, you know, unfortunately, that's not really easily accessible. And I've been to other beaches out of the country, but my heart is in Destin. My son owned some property in Destin for quite a while, so spent a lot of time there. What is your favorite thing about Destin, or what are some of the things that you appreciate about it? The beach is just beyond gorgeous. I've been to a lot of other beaches, and I've never seen one as beautiful. So I have never been to Destin, but I've been to some beaches near there does it have the white sand and the crystal blue water that really can't be beat yeah it just can't (laughs) all right so my question you have talked about your grandchildren well while we've been talking with you so what advice would you give to new grandparents what would you tell them just love those kids up (laughs) you need to be kind of the pillar that doesn't judge doesn't scold doesn't do anything negative if you can help it and just be be a source for for love for those kids I do think another really important thing is, is try not to interfere with the parenting that your children are doing uh, with their children. And I can say that I'm really proud of my children as parents. And I've learned a lot from watching them parent. So I know that you worked in schools for quite a while, but haven't been in the classroom for some years. But what is the thing that you miss most about the school setting or working in schools? I just miss the kids. I loved I loved working with kids. Now, I also love the camaraderie of staff. I don't think that's in all workplaces. I've worked other places. But schools, especially schools who work with uh, children in need, have a special camaraderie among the staff that's just unbelievable. Unfortunately, that you know, doesn't stick once you're gone from that. It's usually just the intensity of what you do daily that pulls you together. But most of all, I miss the kids. But I was able to do volunteer work in schools uh, for a while, and that kind of helped ease that transition a little bit. I I taught full-time before my daughter was born and didn't really think anything at all. I I stopped teaching full-time and didn't think any more about wanting to go back in school until she started kindergarten. And I stepped back into one of the county schools, and I was like, oh, I miss it. It was unbelievable how much I missed it. So if you could hang out for the day with any author, who would it be? Well, there are a couple that popped into my head right away. I would love to hang out with Jane Yolen, who is so prolific that it is unbelievable. And I envy that so much. She's a, she's a children's mm-hmm. author. Would you pick her brain? 
I would, I, you know, I don't even know if I would care to pick her brain. I just would love her company. Mm-hmm. I think she would be so interesting. Now, Jane, you can sign up and receive a poem a day from Jane Yolen. And so every day in my email, I have a nice little poem from Jane. She's written that many poems? She that, writes oh my poetry. Goodness. Now, her poetry, a lot of times, is free verse poetry, which flows a little more quickly than rhyming poetry or, or real strictly metered poetry. So a lot of hers is free verse, but it's always a treat. I know every day in my life that I'm going to have the treat of a Jane Yolen poem. That's really awesome. <laughs> I didn't know about that. I I don't get Jane Yolen's poems, but the American Foundation of Poetry, I think I have that right, has a service that you can sign up for and get a poem to your inbox every day. And the interesting thing about it is that at the bottom, you can also click and someone can read it. I think it's usually the author who reads it. But if the author is deceased, then it's someone else who will read it. Because I do think with poetry, there's something about hearing it spoken mm-hmm. as opposed to reading. It's just a different experience. And so that's a really, that's a really cool service I love as well. like slam spoken poetry. Oh my gosh, I just love that. I was thinking about this one. This is not a person I particularly read any of her stuff. But Dorothy Parker, who was an American poet, but she's pretty sarcastic uh i mean she's just she's just kind of wicked um and i really feel like the two of us would be kindred spirits so <laughs> i totally agree with that <laughs> so she would be the person that if i was gonna you know spend a day with somebody or go out to dinner she mm-hmm. would be the person and really that's probably a good pick for me just because if it was somebody like charlotte bronte i would be fangirling a little too much and probably embarrass myself so that's always a danger when you like even when you go to a conference and you see one of the big best-selling authors you you freeze up almost because they're human but they feel very unapproachable usually and I think that's what I like about that that I mentioned is that you feel like you could sit down and have have a drink with them or you know have a meal with them and you'd have some camaraderie right and you wouldn't feel intimidated right although you should (laughs) So I know you've talked about doing some books for hire, and I'm wondering if you were hired to write a children's version of an adult book, what would be your top choice? Honestly, I could not think of a choice of an adult book that I would put into a children's book, mainly because most books for adults have such complex plots. And the thing about a children's book is, You have 500 words, and you can't have a complex plot. You can't have subplots. A lot of the work of a picture book is done in the illustrations. So your words are about 50% of the story. The illustrations are about 50% of the story. And I can't imagine. I really tried to think hard about a, a book that might fit that. And I couldn't think of a single book. There's one that came to mind to me. Now, I don't know that it would be a picture book in the sense that yours is so like for kids, you know, seven and under, but more like that beginning chapter Mm -hmm. book. And I thought of The Martian by Andy Weir. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Um, It's science fiction, but it's about a group of astronauts who are on Mars to do scientific research. And something happens, there's a, a technical problem, and they have to take off from Mars. And one of their members is left behind in a, in a freak accident. 
And so because of the orbits and different things, they cannot come back to get him for a certain amount of time. And he has to figure out, he happens to be a botanist, he has to figure out how to survive on Mars until this team can come back and get him. So it is a little frightening, but you wouldn't have to include the frightening part. But there's a lot of cool science stuff in it. And Mm -hmm. he figures out how to grow potatoes inside of this pod that they have on Mars. I can just envision like these illustrations of like potatoes growing Mm -hmm. indoors and the, you know, and different things. And so that was the book that that came to mind. I just thought there could be some like cool space illustrations or something i'll have to check that out yeah it's a really good book and i've learned something because i knew that was a movie but i did not realize so that's a movie uh with matt damon yes and i didn't realize that came from a book oh yeah and it is totally a book that is not something that i think of as being my my i don't read a lot of science fiction but i had heard several people say that it was very good and so i decided okay i'm gonna give it a try and there is a lot of scientific jargon in it and and the guy who wrote it is a, is a scientist. I can't remember. He might be a botanist himself. I can't remember. He is a scientist of some sort. So there is a lot of scientific jargon. But the main character, Mark Watney, I believe his name is, is such a funny, likable character. Even if you're not a person who likes a lot of science or that's not something that interests you, you can kind of skim past that part to get to the other stuff. And it's a really, it's a really good book. So my last question for you, Sherry, is this is not something I've talked very much about on the podcast, but I'm a vintage bookseller. And I really love selling books to people of books that they are nostalgic about generally from their childhood. People will write me little notes, you know, oh, I can't believe that, you know, you have this copy of this this cookbook that my grandmother cooked with, you know, cooked with me. What would be your top book that you remember from your childhood that you have nostalgia about? Well, I brought two because I couldn't pick between them. And I wasn't able to get the exact vintage copy that I wanted. It's a an updated. I'd love to have like the original, original. But Flicka, Ricka, and Dicka. I've never one. heard of that one. And then there there were boy triplets called Snip, Snap, and Snur. And when I was a child, I was absolutely obsessed with these books. I can't internalize. I can't dig into my internalization to understand why. But I loved them. Loved them so much. And this is the... Flicker, Rick and Dicka and the strawberries, I think. But that's one of them. And then the other one that really influenced me a huge amount is Little Women. Oh, yes. And mm-hmm. I keep I keep these books sitting out to remind me a little bit of what I loved growing up with reading. And I was very blessed to have a family that loaded us into the car every Saturday and went to the library. And we had a tall piano in our entryway and we stocked our library books up there and that's you know that was their home but that was such a part of my life and I know as a child how much I loved those books so I hope someday I'll be that way for some child that when I was a kid there and I don't know that it's a particularly spectacular children's book I just remember really loving it It was called The Fire Cat by Esther Averill and it is about a it's called Pickles, Pickles the cat. And Pickles was a spotted cat. And Pickles wanted to be a fire cat, just like a Dalmatian, a, oh, you know, spotted yeah. is a fire dog. And so, you know, she learned how to go down the pole and, you know, <laughs> wore the fire hat and everything. And I don't know why, but I just, it, it, it was very visceral for me. I mean, I just really loved this book as a little girl. <laughs> That does not sound like any of the cats I know. They are not that highly motivated. (laughs) 
Or do they want to please anybody? <laughs> well, that is true. Well, the cat, I think, was just pleasing itself, but that's beside the point. Well, Sherry, it has been so great to have you on today. This has been a really great discussion. Well, thank you guys for having me. A couple of announcements, friends. You can find Sherry Howard's book, Rock and Roll Woods, at Amazon, your local bookseller, both indie as well as Barnes & Noble. Join us next week on the show as we welcome our guest Brandon Villarolo, an artisan bookbinder who produces books the way they were made in the time of Jane Austen and all of our favorite literary figures from the 18th and 19th century. And if you're in the Louisville area and you'd like to check out the August literary calendar, it will be posted on our website as well as our Facebook page. We're excited to announce that you can now find our podcast on Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play, as well as Spotify, Podbean, and SoundCloud. Thanks for joining us today. We're under construction and currently switching sites for our webpage. But for now, for show notes for any episode, you can find them at our current blog site. The address is a little long to say, but you can find it on our Facebook page or by Googling Perks of Being a Book Lover. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. And if you are a member of a book club or are sharing reading in some way and would like to be a guest, please contact us at any of these sites as well. You can also leave a message on our Perks line at 502-509-7736. We always want to hear from fellow readers. A huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Podbean, and SoundCloud.